Our gracious Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the blessings of the upcoming Sabbath day. And we've been so inspired so far about our need, our need for being more vivacious and more outgoing and uh, seeking others to witness to, not only for the benefit of others, but actually for my own benefit. And we ask that you be with us now, send us the Holy Spirit, and may He teach us important lessons and truths so that we may be able to share these with others that we come in contact with. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we had seven different lines of evidences that we we're going to look at, and then we were going to look at the last three. The cosmological argument, the experiential argument, and the law of biogenesis. So we're going to talk about the cosmological argument first, and then we'll talk briefly about the law of biogenesis and the experiential argument. That one's so simple, you'll understand it as soon as I mention it. Um, so we're going to say that one for last. So the cosmological argument. This one ad addresses the fact that the cosmos exists. Now, does anyone know what the cosmos refers to? Okay, essentially the universe, right? So the cosmological argument addresses the fact that the universe exists. So thusly, it should have an explanation for its existence. In his book, Not a Chance... Robert Charles Sproul observed the following. Traditional philosophy argued for the existence of God on the foundation of the law of causality. The cosmological argument went back from the presence of a cosmos back to a creator of the cosmos. In other words, traditionally people were saying cause and effect. Well, because we have the universe, therefore someone must have caused the universe. This is what he says traditionally people said. And then he says, it sought a rational answer to answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? It sought a sufficient reason for a real world. You see, it's an observed and accepted fact that the universe actually does exist and it's real. So, atheists and agnostics, everyone in the universe has to acknowledge that the universe does exist. I mean, obviously, we're here, right? We can see stuff around us. We see the sun, moon, and star. But the thing is, this universe is an effect. Welcome. But not only is it an effect, it is actually a contingent effect. Now, I'm using very technical terms here, so if, if it's not making a lot of whole sense, not a whole lot of sense, go ahead and pause and stop, and we'll try to answer and, and clarify a little bit. But basically what we're talking about right now, for those of you who just came in, we're talking about the cosmological argument, which is saying, based on the fact, fact that there is a cosmos or a universe, this proves that someone or something caused this universe to exist. Doesn't that make sense? All of you have cell phones, right? Well, where'd you get your cell phone? At the store. All right, fine. But where did the store get it from? from China. <laughs> That's a smart response. I like that. From China. Okay. In other words, your cell phone didn't come into existence by itself, right? Someone had to cause it to exist. All right. Same thing with the universe. This universe exists, so something had to cause it to exist. And this is what uh, this is what cosmologists are always trying to answer. They're answering, why does all this exist? Why does all this exist? And so they've talked about how it's a grand effect. There are people like Jastrow and others that talk about the universe being a grand effect. Now, what do they mean by this? Uh, if an entity cannot account for its own existence, in other words, it's not sufficient for itself to exist on its own then it has to have depended on something else for its existence. Does that make sense? We know that the Bible teaches us that there is only one being that has ever self-existed. And who is that? God. Yeah, Jesus, God. You, you, you can call him by different titles and names, but his true name you'll find out in the Old Testament, repeated 
at least 6,000 times. Around 6,000 times in the Old Testament is Yahweh. You'll find it in your Bibles in the Old Testament. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's in all caps. Okay, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that. The word LORD in all caps. Why do they do that? To get into that would take a whole hour, so I'm not going to do that. But you will see sometimes they use capital L and lowercase O-R-D, LORD. Other times they use all caps, L-O-R-D, LORD. The reason for that is, in the original Hebrew, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D refer to a tetragrammaton, which is the four letters that represented the name of God. We've transliterated that into English as Yahweh. You've heard that term before? Okay. Yahweh actually comes from the root Yah, which literally means be or exist, to be. Yahweh means self-existent one. That's actually the name of God. And he says, this is my name. And that name is actually repeated about you know, 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And yet, we gloss over it because of the way it's been translated in the English. So anyway, the only entity that it can account for its own existence is God. But everything else is a contingent existence. In other words, it depends on something else. Okay? Because it's inadequate to cause or explain its own existence. Uh, Mr. Sproul continues. He says, Logic requires that if something exists contingently, it must have a cause. This is what we've been talking about. That is merely to say, if it is an effect, it must have an antecedent cause. Okay, you know what cause and effect is, right? What has to come first? Cause, right? After the cause, you see the effects. This is what he's saying. What is the effect? In what we're talking about? The world, the universe, everything. So what is the cause? Very good question, right? Well, you have to remember, most scientists will not firstly readily admit that there is a thing called God. In fact, most theistic scientists don't even really believe in the Creator God. Okay? They believe in a God, but it's not the Creator God of the Bible. Okay? There's a difference. The, the God of the Bible is a creator God. He is a God that created exactly like he said in the Bible. A theistic scientist is one who believes in God, but he doesn't believe in the biblical God, biblical creator God. He believes in a God that created maybe the spark of life and let evolutionary process take its time, and that's how life appears today. You call those people actually theistic evolutionists. Okay, And I don't know whether we'll have time to get into how repugnant that idea is, but it, it, it doesn't match with the Bible. So, here is an analytically true statement. Okay, This is given as true. This is understood as true. What is it? Every effect has an antecedent cause. This is just like saying a square has how many sides? four sides, or, or a bachelor is a, what? An unmarried man, okay? <laughs> okay? Technically, although we've loosened that terminology a little bit. So in other words, by definition, that's what it means, okay? If you think about it, it's meaningless to say it's meaningless to say that something is a cause if it doesn't have an effect. You know what I'm getting at? Right? Likewise, it's just as useless to label something as an effect if it didn't have a cause. Now, do you see how intertwined these concepts are? So a cause by definition must have an effect. And an effect, by definition, must have a cause. Otherwise, it's not an effect. All right? So this is an analytically true statement, or it's a statement that is given or understood to be true. All right? Are we clear so far? 
Okay, good. So this brings us back to the original question. What caused the universe? What is it that caused the universe? After all, there's nobody here that denies there is a universe, right? Okay. Uh, there are only three possible answers, at least that I could come up with. If you can come up with others, please share with me afterwards. But three possible answers to this question. Firstly, the universe is eternal. Okay? It has no cause, it just is. That's one explanation. Number two, the universe is not eternal and created itself out of nothing. Okay? Number three, the universe is not eternal and did not create itself out of nothing, but was created by something or someone superior to itself. Okay? Those are the only three possibilities you can come up with, at least in my estimation. All right? How many of you were in high school or in science class where they told you that the universe is eternal? Have you ever heard that fact before? You have, right? I have. I remember sitting in high school class where they told you that space went on for what? Forever. forever. You're familiar with that, do you see? Wait, forever is a, a long time. It's an eternity. Is that true? Well, you see, in 1991, the COBE satellite, it produced an amazing discovery. Does anyone know what it was? That's right. Did you hear what he said? It discovered, here's the picture of the COBE satellite, it discovered that the universe has an edge, a border. Just like America has borders, you see? The universe that we're in has an edge. Now, how do we determine this? Well, the COBE data regarded, regarding the universe it collected, it, it found out that the universe had a definite beginning. Okay? So, in other words, there was a time when there was no universe. But, all of a sudden, there is a universe. Aha! Does that sound like something's eternal to you? <laughs> okay, there was a time and a moment when there was nothing at all, no universe. But now there is one, we're living in it. So how did that happen? This is what actually the satellite discovered. You will find out that this data was additionally verified by the Hubble telescope. Do you guys know what the Hubble telescope is? That's what it looks like. This thing is 375 miles above the Earth. It takes 97 minutes to do a single orbit around the Earth. Okay, that's traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. It's pretty quick. Well, <clears throat> this thing is the size of a bus. It has a mirror that's about 12 feet wide, a little bit more than that actually, and it weighs a ton, that mirror. And they use these motors and things to focus the light and capture the image of the, saddle, uh, of the stars and the cosmos around us. So here's a, a picture of what one looks like. It works around the clock to unlock all the secrets of the universe. And it uses these extremely precise, pointing, uh, precision, powerful optics, steady-of-the-art you know, instruments to give us these stunning views that ground-based telescopes can't. The reason being is we just have way too much light here on this planet. So they throw a satellite up there and shoot the picture of the cosmos from up top, and you get these really amazing, clear pictures. And so, in 2001, scientists decided to use the Hubble Space Telescope, and they measured nearly 1,000 different galaxies' redshifts. And they also measured surface brightness. And just to give you a very layman's understanding of what this is, you know what the Doppler effect is? You know when a car goes by, you, it sounds like, right? And it's because the sound waves, it's the constant, right? It's the same sound, but it's the way the thing is traveling, it causes the sound to change a little bit. Same thing with universes, they emit light. But depending on whether they're coming towards you or coming away from you, they change their color. It's like a Doppler effect except with light. And so this is what they're measuring. And what they determined was that all these galaxies they measured Every one of them was moving. 
as if they were moving away from a particular point. In other words, they felt the universe was expanding. Now, incidentally, there's no other holy book of the world religion that explains an expanding universe. Uh, the Bible actually says in Isaiah 42, verse 5, how the cosmos is stretching. Interesting. Now, you guys know who this guy is, right? That's right. Stephen Hawking, he was born 300 years after the death of Galileo. Okay? And he has 12 honorary doctorate degrees. Uh, this man, he obviously has his uh, motor neuron disease. And in spite of his disabilities, he has not slowed down at all. In fact, in 2004, at the GR17 conference in Dublin, he gave a very controversial lecture regarding his discoveries or his position, that his position on black holes had changed. And he called it the black hole information lost. Well, in his book that he published in November of 1996, The Nature of Space and Time, he writes, Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a what? Beginning at the Big Bang. Now, I don't personally subscribe to the Big Bang theory, okay, myself, but I think what he's saying here is extremely profound. That he admits the universe, even time itself, had a beginning. Now, why is this significant? Well, remember, we were asking the question, what caused the universe? One of the answers to this, possible answers to it, is that the universe is eternal. But if you say that it had a beginning, what happens to this possibility? It's no longer valid. So, I want to firmly embed in your mind that the universe is not eternal, despite what our science teachers taught us. You know, and I... And, I, I plan on one of these days calling up my science teacher and to ask him, why did he tell me that? Because I remember him telling me that. Well, the reason why it cannot be eternal, I'm going to give you even more information here, is because it would violate two fundamental laws. It would violate the first law of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics. What is the first law of thermodynamics? Now, how many of you have ever heard of these before? Okay, a few of you. All right. With regard to the first law, uh, noted astronomer Robert Jastrow states in Until the Sun Dies, uh, this is what he states, but the creation of matter out of nothing would violate a cherished or concept in science. It's the principle of the conservation of matter and energy, which states that matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed. Okay? Now, this man actually passed away, I think, in February of 2008, Jastrow, when he wrote this, after he wrote this. What he's saying here is he explains, matter can be converted into energy and vice versa, but the total amount of all matter and energy in the universe must remain unchanged forever. It is difficult to accept a theory that violates such a firmly established scientific fact. This is what he says, that you can't have a universe that is eternal because it would violate this. This is basically what he's saying. I know he's using a lot more mumbo-jumbo, okay? But he's saying this is not possible. All right? Now, what about the second law of thermodynamics? Entropy. You familiar with that term? You're not? Okay. Let me just read this and I'll explain it to you a little bit better here. Entropy of an isolated system not in equilibrium will tend to increase over time, approaching a maximum value at an equilibrium. All right? What this is saying, you know what equilibrium means, right? It means order, right? Everything's balanced. Everything's nice, tidy, and all this, right? Okay. So, when you leave things alone, what happens? It has a tendency to wear out, right? 
In fact, we're all wearing out right now, aren't we? Yeah. Even the shoes you wear, the clothes you wear, are they exactly the same as when you bought them? No. The universe is the same thing. In other words, the universe is becoming worn out because less and less energy is available for things to be used. Okay, And so... This means it's moving towards a state of disorder or entropy. Okay? So, I don't know if you guys have rooms that look like this. Okay? Uh, Some of you guys are smiling. Maybe you do. If I were to leave this room alone and come back in a week, would it look better or worse? You think it would stay the same? Wait, 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 wait. So there would be no dust balls and no spiders or... Okay, you see what I'm getting at? What? (laughs) Now, what about 10 years from now? Okay, what about a million years from now? Okay, the house would be gone. You get, what I'm, you get what we're talking about now. If the universe was infinite, if it was eternal, how long have we been here then? And why do we still have order? Simple enough, right? The fact that we still have order tells us that the start of the universe was not so long ago. We haven't worn out yet. We're still here. Because you yourself admitted, if the room was left alone for a million years... You wouldn't even have a house, right? So if the universe was a million years old, what do you think the universe would be like? Now, granted, we're not talking about millions. Most scientists out there tell you that the universe is billions. Yeah. You see? So if it was really that old, how much more entropy or disorder would we have? We would have immense amounts, but the fact is we don't. Gravity still works. Too, too much, I'm afraid. You know? You get the point, right? Okay, so this is how it would violate the first and second law of thermodynamics, which is nothing more than proving with a, like a period and bold and capital letters that what? The universe is not eternal. Okay? So we've dismissed the first one. Let's then look at the second one. So, this second one... Uh, we'll let a scientist, he's a prominent physicist, he wrote, no matter, no material thing can create itself. All right. Further, Dr. Davis emphatically states that this statement cannot be logically attacked on the basis of any knowledge available to us. In other words, the logic of this first statement, he's saying you can't defeat it logically, which is, No material thing can create itself. Think about it in your mind. Any material you want. Did it create itself? The chair that you're sitting on? Did it come into existence by itself? What about your glasses? Or the pen in your hand? Every material thing, it it didn't create itself. And he says, this statement is irrefutably logical. Okay? Are we clear so far? So, but later in 1984, you had evolutionists, uh, Alan Guth and Paul Steinhardt, they wrote this thing called the inflationary universe. And they claim on page 128, from a historical point of view, probably the most revolutionary aspect of the inflationary model is the notion that all matter and energy in the observable universe may have emerged from almost what? Wait a minute. Aren't they contradicting themselves? Didn't they just say that all material things can't create itself? And yet it says, wait, the inflationary model explains that, yeah, everything must have come from... Yeah, well, almost. All right. He goes on. The inflationary model of the universe provides a possible mechanism by which the observed universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region. It is then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. This is their position, the inflationary modelist's position. 
that the whole universe came out of nothing. Now, later on, in 1988, in an interview with Omni, Alan Guth, who wrote that uh, previous statement, he said, In the end, I must admit that questions of plausibility are not logically determinable and depend somewhat on intuition. <laughs> Now, this is nothing more than a fancy way of saying, I certainly wish this was true, but uh, I couldn't prove it to you if my life depended on it. So I'm retracting. I, you know, this is how people talk. They think they have to say it in so many fluffy, puffy words. But basically what he's saying is, everything I told you about the inflationary model, well, you know, it's bogus. I don't think it's possible. So even the guys who came up with it said it's not true. You know who else said it wasn't? The eminent Dr. Hawking, he said in his book, A Brief History of Time, on page 132, he said, the new inflationary model is now what? dead as a scientific theory, although a lot of people do not seem to have heard of its demise and are still writing papers on it as if it was still viable. Okay? Whoa. So, he's basically saying, you guys are really stupid if you really think this is true. So what are these guys saying? The, the originator of that model, Dr. Hawkins says, this second possibility is absolutely false. Okay? It is not true that the universe is not eternal and created itself out of nothing. In other words, the universe did not create itself out of nothing. It's not possible. The inflationary model is dead. So then this leaves us with uh, what? the third explanation. So if the first two are wrong, what do you suppose the third one would be? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, we owe it to ourselves to examine it, right? Because... It could be that all three are wrong. But let's examine it. For us to examine this, I'm going to introduce you to another logical tool. It's called a syllogism. A syllogism depends on a major premise and a minor premise. And then it, you derive from those a conclusion. In other words, if the major premise is true, then the minor premise is true. Then you can reach a true conclusion. All right? Let me give you an example. Major premise. All humans are mortal. What does it mean to be mortal? Live forever. Yeah, mortal means to die, right? So all humans eventually die. Is that true? I am human. I hope. Have you empirically tested whether I am human or not? Remember? <laughs> You'll give me that one. Remember we said in the beginning, any precisely stated proposition is either true or false. There's no, it can't be true and false at the same time. So, I am human. I hope so. Evolutionists will tell you that you're not, that you're an animal. But anyway, yes. <laughs> Ignore the alien head. <laughs> so, All humans are mortal, I am human, therefore, I am mortal. Is that true? Okay, that's perfectly valid. This is what a syllogism is. So when we apply this to cosmology, this is what we get. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. We talked about this, right? Cause and effect, right? All right. The universe began to exist. Science will tell you that. It had a definite beginning. If it had a beginning, that means it had a point at which it began to exist. Are you following me so far? Okay, so if those two are true, then the conclusion naturally derived is the universe has a cause. This is the cosmological syllogism. Now, the universe has a cause, therefore, notice with me, The cause itself of the universe would have to be uncaused. It would have to be changeless. It would have to be timeless. It would have to be immaterial. The cause of the universe. Because the universe is caused, the universe changes, the universe has time, the universe has material. 
Therefore, the cause of this has to not have all of those. Does that make sense? I would submit that that uncaused, chainless, changeless, timeless, immaterial, personal, I would add, cause is God. Is not God changeless? Is not God uncaused? Is not God timeless? Is not God immaterial? Um, the Bible says He's a what? A spirit, right? This is, by definition, who God is. In God and the Astronomer, uh, published in 2000, Robert Jastrow, despite revealing in the first line of chapter 1 that he was personally agnostic about religious matters. This is what he writes out in, his, in, in the book, right there in the, in the first chapter. Jastrow reveals that the evidence from the second law of thermodynamics, the expanding universe, the radiation afterglow, great galaxy seeds in the radiation afterglow, and Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, he talks about all of this, and then he states, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. Okay? He said he was an agnostic. The details differ, but essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to the man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. What's he sound like he's talking about? Creation. In an interview, Jastro went on further and he admitted this. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seed of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. This is from a self-proclaimed agnostic. He wrote a paper, A Scientist Caught Between Two Faiths. Now, this is a powerful testimony, friends. These cosmologists trying to determine why does this universe exist have concluded, not all of them, but Jastrow is very prominent, he's concluded that what we've observed with our scientific machinery and what the Bible records are essentially the same thing. He's an agnostic, and now he's leaning towards a theistic creator, but he doesn't still believe in the Bible like it's written. Okay? It's amazing how much, you know. There, yeah. That's right. There, there's an anecdote that uh, a university was holding a debate with a, a creationist that was coming to town, and uh, you know the the dean of the school was trying to find people to debate, and he called the cosmo cosmology department, and you know they said, well, you need to call anthropology because there's nobody here they'll they'll debate you know, a creationist. Um, now, someone told me that story. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But quite literally, it's as if social scientists, you know, people that are psychologists and people who don't necessarily deal with empirical science, they're, they're still on the bandwagon, whereas the people who deal with hard facts, scientific data, they're, some of them are now leaning more towards the idea, hey, you know what? It's a lot bigger than we think it is. It's a lot harder to explain than we think it is. There must be something going on. But they're not coming out right and saying, oh, I believe in God. You know? But Jastro, this is probably as strong as a, you'll, you'll find any scientist get. Now, he's ridiculed by his fellow cosmologists now. He is completely you know, taken to task at, all the time now. So, 
That, my friends, is the cosmological argument. I know it was pretty ethereal. It was out there. But did that help a little? Do you understand? The reason you and I are here, the reason there is a cosmos outside, tells you and me that it was caused. And that cause is God. Law of biogenesis. Now, before we talk about the law of biogenesis, I just want to briefly talk about the scientific process. And I want to give you a distinction between a theory and a law. You guys know the difference between the two? You do? All right, what's the difference? Okay, but what about a theory? Okay, so in other words, to begin with, what, do you must, what must you have? You need to have a natural phenomena, something that takes place and you go, whoa, how'd that happen? Or, what is that? You know? Or, why did that happen? That has to take place. Then you observe it, you compile your observations, and you then study the data, and then what do you do? You create a hypothesis, right? And then from this hypothesis, you have general, this is a hypothesis, is generalization that explains all the data that you've observed in a summary form. And then if, if further observation conflicts with your hypothesis, what do you do? You change your hypothesis. Then you get a new hypothesis and you formulate that and you observe some more. And you see, oh, you know what? It's not conflicting. Wait we might have a very good hypothesis. So, if further observation confirms the hypothesis, then it becomes a theory. When observations repeatedly confirm the theory, it then becomes known as a law. Okay? So, we are going to be talking about the what? Law of biogenesis. Now, some of you might have seen this one before, but this was uh, done by award-winning cartoonist Jerry King. Uh, he's one of the most published, prolific, versatile cartoonists in the world today, and he addresses that proverbial questions that kids always ask. Mommy, Daddy, where am I from? Right? And then you have to go in the whole business of trying to explain all that. But he... he uh, hmm? Oh, birds and the bees, yeah. So he takes an interesting twist on it in our modern technological age, and he says, Mom saying to the kid, No, you weren't downloaded, you were born. So where does life come from? Where does life come from? You know, I think human beings have always wondered that. But you know what, it wasn't until the 1600s that science started to provide some answers. Back in the 4th century, according to Aristotle and a few other philosophers, they said that it was readily observable fact that aphids came out of dew. Okay? You wake up in the morning, rub your eye, and you look at a plant, there's dew there, and all of a sudden the dew disappears. Whoa, there's an aphid! The aphid, where did it come from? You know what an aphid is, right? It's a little, little plant that sucks the juice of the... No, it's an insect that sucks the juice of a plant, right? And they say, whoa, that aphid came out from the dew. So they said some, some things like that. So it wasn't until the 1600s that scientists got a hold of this and they said, you know what, we need to do some experiments. Let's try this. So Jean-Baptiste van Helmont, he lived from 1577 to the 1600s. He was a Flemish chemist uh, and a physician. He carried out some scientific experiments that you could spontaneous, spontaneously create mice with, this, with these ingredients. Okay? So you take some sweaty underwear... You put some weed on it, and you have an open mouth jar, and you wait just 21 days, and voila! What do you get? Mice! In fact, we have one crawling around in our house in the wall. 
you know? I don't know how he got in there, but the other night, I heard him, like, doing this. And I went over there, knocked, and he stood still. Well, I'm assuming he stood still. I couldn't see him, but, you know. And then I walked away, and then he was scratching again. It was weird. Where did that mouse come from? Did my insulation in the walls create the mouse? (laughs) Oh, very good. Touche. You know, this was a recipe to create mice, so to speak. And this is what people did. And you know what? Every time you did this experiment, guess what? Mice appeared. Well, you know, but that's the way they were doing experiments. They're like, wow, I made an astounding discovery. You know, this wasn't the only recipe. They had recipes on how to make flies and how to make bees and all these kinds of things. But it wasn't until uh, Francis, Francesco Reddy, he came around 1668, and he did some experiments to disprove that spontaneous generation wasn't true. And what he did was he took, some, he took the fly notion, you know, that, oh, maggots and flies, it comes from meat. Okay. So what he did was he put a screen over one jar, and he left another jar with no screen on it. And over time, the one with the screen on top of it where the flies couldn't get in, it didn't have any maggots. It just smelled nasty, but there were no maggots in it. But the one that was open to where the flies could get in, there were maggots. So what did he prove? That flies don't come from dead meat, is what he proved. Because up until then, that's what they said happened. So, this was dealing with complex organisms. You know, flies are complex. They have wings and compound eyes, and, you know, they seem to know when you're trying to kill them and fly off. But what about microbes and germs? You see? They're tiny. So, there was a, a person by the name of Lazaro Spallanzani, And what he did was demonstrate in the 1700s that even microbes don't spontaneously arise. What he did was he took a test of, uh, he took a beaker and he filled it with this broth that had a whole bunch of microbes in it. He boiled it. What do you think all the microbes did? Oh, it's hot in here. And they got boiled away and they all died. And then he sealed the beaker And he left it there. And as long as he kept it sealed, guess what? Nothing grew in there. And then as soon as you break the seal, stuff started growing in there. And then what he demonstrated again was microbes don't arise spontaneously. Okay. You probably heard of Louis Pasteur though, right? You know, pasteurized milk. Well, he's the one who invented that process. Okay, So it wasn't until 1864 when he conclusively proved to the whole scientific world that life does not come from non-life. So far we've been talking about mice, bees, we talked about aphids, right? microbes. The common thought was all those things came from things that were dead or not, not alive. Right? What we're showing is scientists themselves have demonstrated that life does not come from non-life. And what he did was he refined the previous experiment. And what he did was he boiled those microbes in a, in a, in a flask that had this really swan-like shaped neck. And he left it open to air without sealing it. He let the microbes come in. But because of the shape of the flask, they couldn't get into the broth. It took them a long time to get there or whatever, right? And because of that, it was, there was no growth of microbes in that flask. And only when you tilted this flask over so that the broth would hit the dust that had collected in there, that's when the microorganisms started to multiply. So, with spontaneous generation completely disproved, the theory of biogenesis became the law of biogenesis. In other words, repeated observations over and over and over again showed that life comes from life. That's why it's called bio, meaning life, genesis, beginning. Life has to have its start from 
life. This causes, and it actually poses an insuperable obstacle for atheists. Why? Because the burden of proof is now on them. They need to prove to the rest of the world that life can come from non-life. Because that's what they're claiming, right? They're saying, life, oh, there was nothing, and all of a sudden, there was life. Well, this has never happened. Every single biological and organic experiment that has been done shows that life begets life. So how can we account for the fact that life exists at all? Well, in Luke chapter 3, verses 36 to 39, it says, Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of whom? God. Invariably, I get this question. Well, then where did God come from? Right? Well, the fact is, we just talked about the nature of God. We said that Jehovah means what? Self-existent one, right? That is who God is. Well, if God is not self-existent, then he isn't God. So where does God come from? He's been always around. Well, how come he wasn't created? Well, because if he was created, then he wouldn't be he wouldn't be God. So the Bible and the law of biogenesis both declare that life began with a supreme life giver. So there, my friends, is the law of biogenesis. So we're going to deal with the experiential argument, and we will be concluding right on time. How many of you have heard or know where, where this is? <laughs> is that's Italy? <laughs> Not quite. Trust me, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know why? Because I had no idea what was over there until I actually went there. In fact, I was on a plane two weeks after I graduated from college. I was on a plane to Moscow going to this country without even knowing where it was on the map. That's how naive I was. Well, this, my friends, is the country of Uzbekistan. It's the country of Uzbekistan, and it's near Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and all the other stands, okay, that are out there, right? And this is actually here, Tashkent, where I was, and the Marco Polo Silk Route went through it. So it was a very rich and vibrant uh, commerce driven place and it was almost as if it was an oasis in the desert it's pretty hot there now here's my question to you folks how many of you know conclusively that Uzbekistan exists conclusively you do you've been there oh how do you know the globe's not lying to you <laughs> come on Daniel so the whole world is telling you that evolution is true so it must be true okay you see this my friends is the experiential argument none of you have had an experience with Uzbekistan I have I know Uzbekistan is real I know what the people look like I know what, how they talk I know what their food tastes like. I know what their air smells like. Why? Because I had an experience there for nearly two years. The same thing goes with your relationship with God. If you've had a true relationship with the Creator God of the universe, my friends, you have an argument that nobody can counter. Why? Because they don't have your experience. Now granted, all of you may be able to go to Uzbekistan some point in your life. Then you and I can share in that. But you don't have my experience. When I was over there, they changed currency on us five times. 
I was in a place where they didn't have any toilet paper. You had to use paper, like newspaper and whatnot. We had an outhouse. The economy was so unstable, it was just anyone could do whatever they want. As long as you had a bigger stick or you had more money. I mean, this was the kind of life. But if you go over there now, it's not really like that. See, so you would never have the experience that I had. Same thing with your experience with God. No one will ever have your exact experience that you will have with God. But, just like everyone can go to Uzbekistan, everyone can have a relationship with God. But that, my friends, is probably the strongest testimony, the strongest argument that you can give to the existence of God. So, we set forth from this morning till now to ask and ask and answer the question does god exist and we looked at three things but those three things were were actually a part of these seven other things and what we're going to do in the in the morrow i think it's actually 7 p.m. right tomorrow we'll be looking at those two things 7 p.m. tomorrow. We're going to be looking at the Bible and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at, has God spoken? Is the Bible what it claims to be? Are there any questions? Was this easy to follow? Don't be ashamed if it wasn't. Well, then let's conclude with prayer because we were supposed to be done at 8.05 and it's 8.0, almost 8.06 now. Our Father in Heaven, we want to thank you because we know in our hearts, in our minds, the evidence tells us that you do exist. And Father God, at the same time, we praise your name because it's not 100% provable because then none of us would have a choice in the matter. But we're grateful for the fact that you allow us to exercise faith and to come to you voluntarily, to love you on our own accord, and to discover the beauty and the depth of the relationship that we can have with a truly self-existent God. Father, as we enter into your rest, your Sabbath hours, we ask that you bless us with the Holy Spirit. May He give us an experience today where we can experience the life that you want us to have. The spiritual awakeness that you want us to have. Help the Holy Spirit to teach us that you truly not only exist out there, but you want to exist in our hearts. And allow us the grace and the humility to allow you to exist in our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.